Hello, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Grant Turner, and I'd like to uh, you know, formally welcome you to the Institute of World Politics. I'm a student here at IWP, and I'm delighted to introduce today's speaker, Mr. Janusz Bogajewski. For those that are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you're interested in learning more about us, please speak to one of our staff. I believe Ashton is here with us in the back. He's raised his hand uh, at the conclusion of this event or visit IWP.edu. On behalf of the Institute, I would like to thank all of our supporters who make IWP events possible. And I would like to especially thank the sponsor of today's event, Mr. Greg Rushford. To support the mission of IWP, please visit iwp.edu slash donate or click the link in the video's description. Today, we will be hearing from Mr. Bugayeski, who will deliver a lecture titled The Impact of Russia's State Failure. Janusz is currently a senior fellow at the Jamestown Foundation in Washington, DC. He's a contributor to several media outlets in the US and Europe, and has, or has worked in various capacities with the US State Department Department of Defense and USAID. He has testified before a number of US congressional committees, including the Helsinki Commission, Senate Foreign Relations, Senate Armed Services, House Foreign Affairs, and House Defense Appropriations. Janusz has authored 21 books on Europe, Russia, and transatlantic relations. His recent books include Failed State, A Guide to Russia's Rupture, which was published in 2022, Eurasian Disunion, Russia's Vulnerable Flanks with Margarita Asanova, which was published in 2016, and Conflict Zones, North Caucasus and Western Balkans Compared, which was published in 2014. His forthcoming book is titled Pivotal Poland, Europe's Rising Strategic Player. Copies of Mr. Bogoski's book, Failed State, A Guide to Russia's Rupture, will be made available for purchase at the conclusion of the events and can be signed by the author. The Jamestown Foundation also offers free digital copies of all its books on its website, and hard copies may be purchased there as well. With that, please join me in warmly welcoming Mr. Janusz Bogajewski. Okay. Okay, thank, thank you very much, Grant. I appreciate it. Um, good to be here. Thank you all for coming on this lovely evening. And... Uh, particularly want to thank, oops, can I move this a little bit? Okay. Is that out of the way enough? Or? Yep. Otherwise, I'm going to keep hitting my yeah. head on it. It's like one of those British comedies, you know. It's, but uh, anyway, yeah, um, particularly want to thank the organizers, sponsors, and so forth of the event. Um, I just returned, actually, we had a big U.S.-Ukrainian event uh, all day today. So I was speaking there about... Um, Ukrainian memory wars with Russia uh, and how the what is the core of the conflict between the two countries uh, I can cover some of that here if you're interested I mean Ukraine is the big uh, uh, the big question actually at the moment the Ukrainian Russia war but um, what I'm here to do is to present my my last book not, not last meaning there will be others uh, but uh, this is a book that I actually finished believe it or not in January 2022, so literally three weeks before the war began, um, a lot of us thought there would be a war. We didn't 
realize, I suppose, how major it would be and how, um, how profoundly it would change things. But I actually would not change a single word in the book. I, I had a little bit of time to adjust, um, particularly the introduction, because of the editors at Jamestown. Jamestown's very good because they publish books very quickly. Unlike university presses, I mean, it'd be out of date, but Jamestown published within a few weeks or two or three months. Um, so I was able to include a few updates, but basically the war, the Russian attack on Ukraine, full-scale attack on Ukraine, uh, I believe has actually accelerated what I write about in the book, uh, which is the rupture of Russia as an imperial state. Uh, the book has been translated already into Ukrainian and Russian, and I did a book tour of Ukraine in May, uh, several cities. Um, also, uh, the next editions will be Polish, Finnish, Bulgarian, and Montenegrin. So uh, I'm covering much of the Slavic and Finno-Ugric world. I don't think the Hungarians would publish at this point, but, uh, but we'll see. Things may change. So anyway, the core of the book, the core of my thesis, uh, is that since it emerged from the Soviet Union in 1991, the Russian Federation uh, has proved unable to develop into either a nation state, uh, in other words, a nation state based around a single or a pre predominant ethnicity, uh, a multi-ethnic federation. In fact, all the federal attributes were stripped down by Putin and there's basically nothing left of the federation hasn't evolved into a civic state, um, in other words, a, a democratic state like, like the United States, or I would say even a credible and stable imperial state, as the failing war in Ukraine has underscored. Even Russian identity is a source of domestic dispute, whether it should be ethnic, the different terms for Russian and Russia, Ruski, which is the ethnic for ethnic Russians, or imperial, Rossiski, which includes uh, other peoples, including not only the ethnic Ruski, but other peoples. Or whether it should be a civil and non-ethnic state. Uh, and that debate uh, has continued, although Putin has stifled a lot of that debate, because much of the opposition is now uh, in exile. So Moscow's extensive war against Ukraine, launched uh, in February last year, February 22, has exposed Russia as an anachronistic imperial and colonial state. The approaching rupture, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit of detail in a moment, I would call the third phase of imperial collapse, following, first of all, the unraveling of the Soviet bloc. We always think the first phase was the collapse of the Soviet Union. No, the unraveling of the Soviet bloc was that first phase, because those countries that were subordinate to Moscow including Poland and Bulgaria and East Germany, uh, Czechoslovakia, Hungary and Romania, uh, broke free and established full independence, not beholden to uh, Moscow's diktat. Um, so an unraveling of the Soviet bloc and then the disintegration of the Soviet Union in the early 90s into 15 states were the two precursors to, I think, what's going to happen next. Some historians even posit that the dissolution will be a continuation of the collapse of the Tsarist Empire. Uh, and if you're, well, you were too young to remember, but, and the resulting uh, civil wars, which lasted for about 20 years uh, in the 1920s, um, ten, well, 
15 years to be more precise, uh, in which several countries tried to re uh, regain independence. Some did, like Finland and Poland. Others, like Ukraine, Georgia, and others didn't. Uh, but there were other iterations as well of uh, other states also that were that were fighting for their independence at the time, including in the Caucasus and the Middle Volga and so forth. The war in Ukraine, I, I go th into some detail about this, has unearthed Russia's multiple weaknesses, uh, including now a contracting economy that is increasingly squeezed by international sanctions, over-dependence on energy revenues, uh, which have dramatically decreased, largely because of the loss, for the most part, with some exceptions, with the loss of the European market, restricted access to international financial markets or foreign investments or high technology, military losses in Ukraine that reveal the incompetence and corruption of Russia's ruling elite. Amazes me how many people were shocked by how poorly the Russian military performed in Ukraine uh, and a lot of it was down to the traditional Russian thing, which is not to reveal, like the old five-year plans, not to reveal what's actually happening, but to try and please uh, your boss by giving certain statistics about your capabilities, performance, the, the operability of uh, military equipment and so forth. But the enormous corruption in the Russian military, I think, is uh, indicative, I would say, because the military often reflects society, is the extent of corruption and, um, um, and, and, and disinformation within Russian society. Also, uh, an, a very important point, which I cover a lot in the book, is what, what I believe is rising disquiet in numerous regions uh, over shrinking budgets. A lot of the regions have had to themselves pay for the military, that are, the, con the conscripts, that have been now contracted, and a lot of that payment is coming out of regional budgets. At the same time, there's, uh, these, because of the fact that the regional budgets are going to be shrinking, uh, there's declining spending on essential infrastructure, on pensions, salaries, social services, and so forth. In other words, that the war itself is going to deplete the Russian budget, and we see various economists, including at Yale, talking about how this is going to affect um, uh, decreasing budget, how it's going to affect spending. And we don't even know precisely how much they are spending on the military. Uh, one, one believes, actually, that it's much larger than the statistics that they issue. Also, I would say the disproportionate mobilization and deaths of non-Russians and poor Russians in the invasion and occupation of Ukraine. Uh, will aggravate frustration in national republics and regions. Um, we're already seeing signs of this. There have been protests in various parts of the country. One of the reasons Putin hasn't called for a full-scale mobilization, I think, two things. One is fear uh, that this could create social unrest, um, particularly in the regions. But also he doesn't want to aggravate too much potential protests in the large cities. A lot of, the, you know, Moscow, St. Petersburg and other large cities have had a proportionately small mobilization or call up of, uh, of, of, um, of troops for the front. This quiet, I would say, uh, and again, I chronicle this in my book. If you look in, in depth at the conditions in Russia, an accumulate, accumulation of pre-existing grievances, including sharply rising poverty levels, 
stark socioeconomic inequalities between rich and poor, between city and country, between small cities and bigger cities. Uh, falling federal financial subsidies to the republics and regions. Uh, deteriorating local infrastructure. I mean, the number of airports, for instance, that have been closed down. Russia is a big country, so to move around between between regions, you had to depend on air, air flights. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the airports have been closed. Um, environmental disasters. Uh, if you remember, some of the protest movements in the former Soviet Union began over environmental questions. Uh, I remember particularly in Latvia and Estonia. Uh, they fueled the opposition, beginning of the opposition movement against the government, against the regime. So you have, um, I mean, everything from um, uncontrolled forest fires, the dumping of trash, um, trying to reroute rivers, which will affect uh, you know, different residents in different parts of the country in a negative way. Now you have this problem that they're going to face increasingly, which is uh, the thawing of the permafrost which uh, is going to create problems for their energy infrastructure uh, and, as some say, may actually be uh, climactically uh, very dangerous in releasing various viruses into the, into the air and into the soil. So, you know, Russia faces, uh, and they're not spending uh, almost anything now on trying to protect the environment. Again, accumulation of, of such grievances, I think, contribute to... Um, contribute to local unrest and will contribute. Collapsing healthcare services. Uh, additionally, I would say an additional factor, particularly for the national republics, and I'll talk more about these, is intensifying Russification and destruction of ethnic identities. Um, the language law that was introduced a few years ago actually limits the use of non Russian languages. Um, there's been protests, again, they haven't spread as yet, um, but it's it's indicative of how the, the central state, the, the Moscow, is trying to limit the potential for the re-identification or rediscovery of national identity by non-Russians. So let, let me go to the sort of core of it. Um, although Russia's 1993 constitution, that's the old, uh, I suppose, the Yeltsin constitution, defines the country as a federation, uh, in reality, it is, it is a centralized and authoritarian neo-imperial construct. Uh, as war losses escalate in Ukraine, the regime will exhaust its re repressive cap capacities to hold the country together. It will come under increasing domestic pressure, and I think there will be increasing power struggles between the Kremlin and its critics in the military and security services, between rival nationalist and imperialist factions, and between Moscow and several disaffected republics and regions. And I wrote that before we had the Wagnerite Rebellion. If you remember uh, the military mutiny staged by uh, Prigozhin and his Wagnerite mercenaries or paramilitaries, ironically sponsored and paid by the state, but then rebelled against the state because of the corruption and incompetence of the military structure in Russia. Um, it happened in June. Prigozhin actually didn't come out directly against Putin. He wanted the replacement of Shoigu, the defense minister, and Gerasimov, the uh, chief of staff. Uh, it, it, he, he stopped short. But I think what it revealed was how vulnerable Russia is to internal revolt. I mean, a few thousand troops managed to take over the city of Rostov. 
and, and basically get to the gates of Moscow in a couple of days unopposed and managed to shoot down a few, um, uh, some of the military roadblocks, some of the helicopters, some of the, uh, some of the, some of the uh, units that were sent out to stop them. It indicates, I would say, the vulnerability of Russia internally to revolt. We've also seen this along the border with Ukraine where you've had, uh, I'm not even talking about Ukrainian forces penetrating Belgorod and, and Kursk and other areas, but um, these Russian uh, anti-Putin paramilitary forces that have also, with impunity, crossed the border, taken over some towns, uh, destroyed military equipment without very much resistance or protection by the Russian military. So, again, uh, another sort of core uh, question here, and the, the way I phrase it is this way. The Russian Federation confronts an urgent existential paradox. Without political pluralism, economic reform, uh, genuine regional autonomy, and openness again to international investment, international trade, particularly with the West, the federal structure will become increasingly unmanageable. However, I would say even if democratic reforms were undertaken, by a weakening central state uh, confronting a destructive war, which is similar without the war, but the, the weakening central state is what we had in the Soviet Union. Uh, but under uh, uh, tightening international sanctions, a destructive war which, seems to, which is seemingly ending in defeat, or let's say uh, retreat that may end in defeat, several regions within Russia could exploit the opportunity to secede. The chances for violent conflicts may diminish in the event of systemic reform, which doesn't seem likely, while the prospects for violent conflict substantially increase if reforms are indefinitely blocked. And I've talked to even some of the um, Russian opposition uh, people, people like Khodorkovsky and others, who want to preserve the country, but even they admit if there is democratic reform, if there is genuine federalism in Russia, that still some regions or some republics may want to leave, um, particularly in the North Caucasus, maybe even the Volga or the Far East. And I, I think that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this is another point I want to make, Russia's invasion of Ukraine can be turned against it. It demonstrates that the Kremlin does not respect the international borders of neighboring states. Now, this imperial policy, I think, can rebound on Russia itself as the country's external and internal borders become increasingly disputed by its numerous republics, regions, and neighbors. For instance, uh, they claim Crimea and four oblasts, Kherson, uh, uh, Zaporizhia, uh, Donetsk, and Luhansk, as being already part of Russia. Now, if they lose those territories, which they don't even control all of them, I mean, they don't control all of Donbass area or, or all of Kherson and Zaporizhia, if they lose those territories, it means what? It means Russia is shrinking again, that its claims to controlling territory in Ukraine uh, is not only being challenged, but it's been reversed. That, that sends a signal, I think, throughout, throughout the rest of the country. It's symbolically, I would say, very important in demonstrating that Moscow is not invincible, that it can and will lose territory. Let me, can I just put the, here we go. I put up some maps here for you. There's the Russian Federation. There's your 83 
federal subjects. I'm not including uh, Crimea or Donbass, which they do, as, uh, and Sevastopol as federal subjects, but the rest of it, the rest of the country. Now, what I argue in the book is that Russia's rupture will not follow a single pattern. Uh, it's likely to include elements of both the Soviet and Yugoslav scenarios from the 1990s. Uh, it will not be a single event. You know, don't expect to wake up tom tomorrow morning and Russia's gone. But a number of rolling crises, breakdowns of central authority, uh, revolts by, uh, in the regions, uh, and so forth. Even uh, if you look at the collapse of Yugoslavia, it was not uniform. Uh, for each emerging state. Remember, six states emerged from Yugoslavia, but it was not uniform. Several republics largely avoided violent conflicts. Uh, Serbia, Montenegro, uh, Macedonia up to a point had a guerrilla war at the end. Whereas some, some of them experienced, Bosnia, Croatia in particular, experienced Kosovo very violent conflicts. And the process of disintegration may last for over a decade. It's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be it's not going to be settled quickly, I would say. While a number of uh, republics may exit the Federation relatively unscathed, you could witness outright conflicts between the center and, fed and several federal subjects, especially those with significant resources, uh, particularly in parts of Siberia, Western Siberia, where you have a lot of the oil and gas, uh, or the northern, some of the Arctic regions, or in the Far East. Um, in some, in some parts of the country, Russia's rupture could lead to border disputes between neighboring republics and regions aspiring to independence. Not everything's been resolved. You look at the North Caucasus. Uh, Grant, you mentioned a book I wrote a few years ago. I talk about in it a lot of the conflicts that we have, un uh, unresolved disputes that Moscow has, itself has fanned in a policy of classic policy of divide and rule between Chechnya and Ingushetia, between Ingushetia and North Ossetia, between Dagestan and Chechnya. So those sort of unresolved disputes could come to the forefront if they're not resolved and discussed and somehow mediated uh, in the interim. Um, however, I would say <coughs> the, the process of rupture, as soon as one republic or a few republics decide to go for independence or greater autonomy, or reject the center's control over their resources, I think there'll be a sort of ripple effect. I think it will cascade. Um, it will embolden the emergence of other new states and as well as regional federations. Uh, remember, in, uh, during, as I mentioned earlier, the Russian Civil War, we had the emergence in 19, uh, after World War I, between 1918 and about 21-22, when the Bolsheviks managed to regain much of the territory, we had the emergence of various confederations within the Russian Empire. Uh, the mountain, mountain, mountainous republic in North, Ca North Caucasus included seven different nations, seven different territories. The Idel Ural um, uh, confederation in the middle Volga region included Tatarstan, and actually I can show you these, uh, Tatarstan and Bashkortostan. Let me look at, is this the wrong way? Oh, I've got a point there, that's right. Nope. Don't tell me the battery's expired. It's okay. Oh, it goes backwards. Oh, here we go. Okay. 
Yeah, actually, let me do that. Let me move on to that. Yeah, just as a uh, point of note, federal subjects, 22 autonomous republics, uh, which means that there, are, there is an ethnicity in each of these republics uh, after which the republic is named after. They're not a majority in all of them, but in 14 of them, and I'll tell you in a minute a bit more detail, in 14, the Russian population, ethnic Russian population, is now, uh, does no longer forms a majority. It's in, in a minority position. There are also nine territories, 46 regions, four autonomous districts, one autonomous region, three federal cities, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Sevastopol. Um, this is another thing. I don't think I'll have time to go into all the indigenous, the decolonization process. Um, but let me show you, for instance, the North Caucasus republics. Most of these uh, formed a separate mountainous republic uh, in the 1920s. It was squashed by the Bolsheviks. Um, but there are now signs that uh, the Chechen government in exile and, and English groups and even the Circassian population is getting more mobilized to try and revive something, uh, something similar, um, calculating that as separate, fully separate ind independent republics, they'll be less credible or internationally recognizable than if they get together and form some sort of confederation. You have also the Idel Middle Volga republics, Idel Ural, um, core of this, of course, is Tatarstan. The Tatars, by the way, the second largest ethnic population in Russia. Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, and uh, the, the others, as you see, Mari El Mordovia, Udmurtia, and Chuvashia. Um, it's a mix of Turkic people and Ugro-Finnic people. But they've been proposing for quite a while to have uh, a separate confederation. And there are signs, there are movements, I can go into this a bit later, uh, trying to revive this. Um, Going through the rest, Northwest Territories, uh, Karelia, of course, gets interesting because, as you know, Finland has just joined NATO. Uh, has no aspirations to Karelia as such, but as you know, parts of Karelia were taken away from Finland during the uh, Soviet-Finnish wars, uh, during World War II. Um, you also have the uh, probably the, some of the richest parts of Russia, which is the oil and uh, gas-producing regions. Um, but they do have sizable indigenous populations, but also locals um, with, uh, I would say, uh, a, 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 a more distinct sense of uh, identity um, uh, than, um, than simply Moscovite. In other words, there are local Russian identities uh, which are different to, 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 to Moscow. Um, Here's uh, some of the Siberian regions. Um, Southern Siberia in particular has several uh, autonomous uh, republics. They, they're not really autonomous, but Tuva, for instance, say in the far south, uh, has, I think, something like uh, Russian population that has dropped to under, well under 10%. Um, and last but not least, the Pacific regions Yakutia, it's actually called Saka, the Yakut people, could be one of the richest republics um, that emerged. It's actually the size of India, but it's one of the richest republics, a huge uh, diamond, gold, uh, precious metals, and, and so on and so forth. So, and, and again, openness of the far eastern Khabarovsk and Primorsky to, um, and Sakhalin to Japan, to Taiwan, to Canada, US, and so forth. Um, and I just returned from Japan a, a few weeks ago where we had a big conference about post-Russia and the Japanese. 
not only over the, the islands that were taken from them by Stalin, but increasingly looking uh, towards the future of the Far East, where there could be some, on the one hand, competition with, with China, which also has aspirations in those territories, uh, but also um, potentially cooperating with the new republics that emerged from Russia. As you notice, there's also a Jewish autonomous republic, or Burobidjan, that was created by Stalin uh, for Yiddish-speaking Jews uh, as an alternative to Israel uh, in the 1920s. And some of these, um, um, uh, some of the Bolshevik Jews uh, helped to establish this, and the Jewish population went there. Not many stayed because, as with the Soviet Union, it wasn't very, very hospitable. It was a, a sort of a completely isolated area, and uh, many of them subsequently emigrated. But there is still remnants of an old uh, uh, Jewish population there, actually, in, in Birabidjan. Anyway, uh, let me sort of continue as you as you look at the maps. I would I would add this that you have another component here. Thousands of demobilized troops will be returning to their republics and to their regions with weapons. We're not sure how many are going to be paid. At the moment, the Mos Moscow is trying to show that each of these soldiers is going to get a large salary, that they're, you know, go and fight in Ukraine because then you'll be set up for the rest of your life as long as you survive. Um, or your family will be set up for the rest of their lives even if you die. At least your family will get a car or something. Um, but I think that the opportunities for violence will escalate. We're already here, in particular, the Wagnerites that have been released. When I say released, they were prisoners. A lot of them are coming back. They're not going back to prison. They're going back to their communities. And there's signs that violence, again, uh, with weapons is increasing in different parts of the country. Lastly, I would say here that if Moscow deploys uh, Russian ethno-nationalism, in attempts to keep the federal state intact, intact, this way I think will provoke even more violence. We often think that it's the separatist movements that start the violence. It's usually the other way around. It's the center that wants to hold the country together the way it is that starts the violence against the separatists. This is what we saw, for instance, in Yugoslavia. Um, you know, it was Milosevic who was trying to keep if not Yugoslavia together, at least the greater Serbia together. Uh, even under Yeltsin, um, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there were still attempts to, to terrorize and frighten some of the um, local nations not to break away from the Soviet Union. So we saw an attempted crackdown in Georgia, in Azerbaijan, in uh, Lithuania, in Latvia. It didn't work because the center was not strong enough to simultaneously conduct repressive operations to keep everybody in check throughout the country. And I think a similar process may, may, well, evolve, um, may well evolve now. Also, if uh, something, some other factors that need to be looked at, xenophobia, which Moscow is trying to stir against Central Asian and um, Caucasian immigrants uh, in the country, that could, will rebound against them. Islamophobia, if they start to use this Russian Orthodoxy and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Islam as the enemy as, or as, as breeders of terrorism, which is one of the pictures they're trying to, to paint, actually. If Russia breaks up, you're gonna f you, there's going to be more terrorism. There's going to be more Islamic terrorists. Uh, so all these uh, sentiments, anti-immigrant sentiments, uh, anti-Muslim sentiments that Russia, the Russian government may try to stir, 
um, it's, it's actually going to shorten that fuse, I think, to, to a potential uh, explosions in the country. Now, yeah, so I've gone through the maps. I can talk about, yeah, let me talk about demography. I want to open up to as many questions as possible. But I would say the demographic decline of ethnic Russians uh, poses another challenge uh, for the country's cohesion, political and territorial cohesion. And I think it will encourage movements for, and already is, movements for autonomy. According to census figures between 89 and 2010, in 14 of the 21 republics, the ethnic Russian population steadily decreased proportionally to the titular nationality. In 13 republics, ethnic Russians form less than half of the total population. In nine, ethnic Russians form less than a third of the population. Uh, and, uh, and the Russian population is smaller than that of the titular nationalities. So in other words, I've already shown you Chechnya, Chuvashia, Dagestan, Ingushetia, Kalmykia, Saka, Tatarstan, Tuva. I think these are sort of the first candidates, if you like, if separation is based simply uh, on ethnic questions, national questions, identity questions, they'll be the first to sort of move towards the door. And uh, the shrinkage of the ethnic Russian population evidently continues. There's been a lot of debate about the most recent census that was taken in 2021. Uh, Tatars and others are up in arms because the Russia is it's showing that the Tatar, for instance, population outside Tatarstan is falling. Uh, whereas there's a lot of, a lot of actually protests against this by academics and by experts on uh, uh, demographers uh, that this simply could not be the case. That something has been falsified uh, during the taking of that census, most of which was done, uh, of course, during the COVID epidemic. And the excuse they used that we couldn't really talk to people was because, well, there was an epidemic that was closed down and so forth. So they did a lot of this online. And of course, a lot of people don't go online to answer questions. So they simply assume that, um, uh, that, that, uh, that figures from the past would be repeated or that uh, those with Russian names, for instance, were Russians rather than non-Russians, which isn't often the case. Um, okay, so, yeah, maybe the last point I want to make is, is this, that Russia's fracture will have an impact on all neighboring states. And remember, Russia borders 14 countries. Um, so inevitably, there's going to be uh, some spillovers, whether of conflict, whether of refugees, um, countries wanting to defend their kindred populations. I mean, one of the best examples, I think, is probably Turkey. There's a lot of Turkic-speaking uh, peoples in Russian Federation, uh, particularly Middle Volga, Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, uh, but also the Saka, the, 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 the Yakut people, that's a Turkic language. And there's a sort of ethnic, cultural, and religious, of course, you know, Muslim peoples, these religious connections that are going to draw in countries uh, such as Turkey um, to defend their, their, their kindred. Mongolia is another example. We rarely hear about Mongolia, but there's a large um, Mongolian population in, uh, in, in Russia. Uh, see, in the south, uh, there's... Um, uh, where are we here? There's a, there's a Buryat Republic, and there's, uh, there's also a Buryat, um, Buryat Autonomous Region, 
with a large Buryat Mongol population. Tuvans themselves are sort of related uh, to Mongols. There are those in Mongolia who may um, begin to claim territory, just as I think the Chinese, uh, Beijing may seek territory that they claim was lost to Russia when China was very weak in the 19th century. So there are territories within South Siberia that will also, um, in addition to the Turkic and Muslim populations, that could be claimed, if not the territory, but at least the population or defense of that population will be, will be claimed by neighbors. And of course, you know, if you, if you go for independence, the first people you're going to reach out to is your, your ethnic kindred, right, or religious kindred. Um, so that's what I would expect would happen uh, in Russia. There are also, remember, Finno-Ugric populations. I mentioned Karelia. There are others uh, in the north uh, with uh, linguistic and cultural links with Finns, with Estonians, and so on. Um, so again, um, a revival of Finno-Ugric culture, Finno-Ugric tradition, Finno-Ugric nationality can be expected. So... How much time do I have? 20 minutes. You know what? I think maybe I will stop there. I mean, if there's a lot of other stuff I'm running through, but maybe I'll stop there and answer them in questions. So let's open up to, to you all. Please. So the last point you were making about mm -hmm. how Russia's collapse might and will impact this event. Mm -hmm. We've seen recently in the attacks of Al-Fatan on Taormina, that collapse has left a place where Russia was once peacekeeping and right. is now getting unable to. Yep. So my question is, how do you see that power vacuum being filled and the impact of that in the Yeah, well, good question. Um, Karabakh, you know, the taking back of Karabakh by Azerbaijan, I think, shows a couple of things. One, that Russia is weakening in the South Caucasus where it's claimed since the 18th century to be both North and South Caucasus as part of its sphere, part of its empire. Uh, and what, what Russia has been doing for the past uh, 25, 30 years has been trying to uh, keep Azerbaijan and Armenia at odds with each other, not trying to resolve the conflict, far from it. But, you know, it's this classic divide and rule. Um, and they've been selling weapons to both sides as well over these years. So now, so the first thing is that Russia is certainly weakening in the South Caucasus. We sim uh, see a similar process in the Central Asian republics, with the Kazakhs in particular increasingly moving away from Russia, um, changing the alphabet, um, making sure Kazakh is the main language, uh, moving closer economically to the West. Okay, China, they fear China, but there is Chinese money coming in. So that's one thing, Russia weakening. Uh, secondly, I would say Turkey rising in the region. You know, the Turkish-Azeri, uh, Turkish-Azerbaijan relationship really took off after the first Azerbaijani assault to regain the seven districts around Karabakh, if you remember a couple of years ago. Um, so Turkey is increasing, has a security pact with Azerbaijan. Remember, it's a NATO member as well. So in, as I said earlier, it, Turkey will increasingly try to establish, if not a sphere of dominance, some sort of sphere of influence in the Turkic-speaking world. And quite frankly, a lot of these new republics, the new regions and republics that will be emerging from Russia, are going to look to Turkey as a gateway towards the West. Um, Turkey can be their sponsor. Um, and also remember, Turkey, uh, Turkey has, uh, you know... <laughs> 
energy transit from Caspian. So there's certainly connections and interest that Turkey has in developing those regions with energy, regardless of Russia. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of connectivity there. In terms of power vacuum, um, well, I suppose that's, that's what you could argue, that where, where Russia recedes, Turkey, particularly in this region, Turkey will gain more prominence. However, I would say a lot of these countries, including Azeris, are reaching out more to the West and more to the European Union, more to the United States to become more involved uh, economically, energy-wise, investment, trade, and so on. Um, because they, they fear, they don't want to go back onto the, into the Russian fold, but they, they also have suspicions about the Chinese, too much Chinese influence, uh, which could lead, if not to territorial claims, but at least some security threats um, and control over their economies, over their budgets and so forth. Similar to what we have, I suppose. But, but yeah, I hope that answers your, your question. Please. <clears throat> So I'm surprised that, based on what you said, Russia hasn't collapsed already. They've lost all of their weapons, most of their big trucks. Mm -hmm. Their economy is in shambles, apparently, based on what you said. The oligarchs have been isolated. What is it, then, in Russia that keeps them going and going forever? And I'll answer that, and I'll get you started. But you can mention how they've been able to organize a of psychological warfare to allow their soldiers to go in with disregard for their own deaths. That they're fighting for something, the motherland, the fatherland, they're fighting for the, the Russian Orthodox ideology from the church, and if they do die, they're going to a, a better place. Their families are being rewarded. And the disintegration you describe is happening in the West. The Russians are involved in destabilizing governments all around. The, the Poles now are pulling out of the coalition. Hungary is Which coalition? Reluctant. That's yeah. not true. Poles aren't pulling out of anything. Okay, let me answer your question before you go on too long. Uh, one, uh, well, you, either you answer a question or you want to speak yourself. Yeah, okay, let me answer what you, you've said. First of all, I wouldn't necessarily, uh, what you're what you're saying actually is repeating a lot of the Moscow talking points, how loyal our troops are. Um, this propaganda that uh, everybody's highly motivated, that's not what the Ukrainians are finding at all. And if you listen to some of the telegram channels of Russian soldiers speaking to each other, they're not at all enthralled uh, by the military. Why has Prigozhin uh, and his people rebelled against the Russian military? Because they're not getting the supplies, they're getting lied to, they're not getting the ammunition, uh, they don't trust the government. So I would be careful not to follow the sort of Muscovite propaganda that this is all going swimmingly for the Russians, far from it. Also, I would say they haven't lost everything. They've still got reserves of ammunition, of uh, particularly artillery, um, tanks, um, they still have a lot of military supplies. A lot of them old, a lot of them for the Soviet era. Nevertheless, they're using up as much as possible. They've got mass of cannon fodder because very poor people for a small salary or for, let's say, what they would earn in six months, uh, they would earn, it would take them years to earn holding down a normal job. However, that's going to start running out and it already is. 
There's reports from different parts of the country that they're not getting the pay or the families are not getting what they were promised. And that's a recipe together with so many deaths, particularly in the smaller republics with small villages, where if you lose five or six men, that's, that's huge. You know, if in Moscow you lose five or six men in a block, big deal. I mean, in small communities in Gushetia, Dagestan, um, Buryatia and so on, that's a lot. That means a lot. That's your breadwinner gone. And if you're not getting the pay that you were promised, then that's, uh, that's a disaster. Also, I don't know where you get the idea that Poland has pulled out of what? what Poland hasn't pulled out of anything. There's been a grain dispute uh, just before the Polish elections. Both sides were at fault. It's a complicated question, but you know, Ukrainian grain is actually cheaper. The Poles are perfectly happy to export Ukrainian grain through Poland. They don't want it competing with their own farmers. That is the question. Not only Poland, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Hungary in the same position. Similar to what the French objected to when Polish when Poland entered the European Union. Do you remember the, the farmers, the, the disputes that the farmers did not want Poland in because of grain? Poland hasn't pulled out of anything. It still supplies the most weapons. Um, the hub in Rzeszów is, uh, is buzzing with all the weapons that are coming in from the international community. So the West is not divided. This is, there are, of course, there are divisions. We're democracies. We, we have disputes over all sorts of questions. But over the basic uh, aid to Ukraine, military, uh, humanitarian, economic aid, there is no, there's no division big enough to change policy. Let's put it that way. Sorry? Well, I don't know. Will he? <laughs> well, you know, I'm not speculating about what Trump's going to do and who's going to be elected. Um, there was an interesting poll, though, out today. I don't know if you saw... Uh, I think it was a Chicago, Chicago uh, University, I think they do this major polling. Support for arming Ukraine hasn't, has only dropped by 2% in America since November. So don't believe what you hear from the Trump people that, that America no longer supports Ukraine. The majority of congressmen on both sides, particularly in the Senate, but also in the House, support aid to Ukraine. Well, look at the figures. I'm not making this up. <laughs> look at the figures. So, so some, of the, some of the most, uh, let's say, ardent supporters of Ukraine are actually Republicans in the Senate um, who think Biden has done a poor job by not giving them enough and fast enough to defeat the Russian army. Uh, problem is, I think the Biden administration has not explained yet to the American public exactly what we want and exactly what should be done and what it means for American security, what it means for Western security to defeat the Russian army. And by defeat, meaning not allow them to hold any part of Ukraine, because any, any kind of, let's say, victory for the Russian army will be, I think, a disaster for the West. And I think it will send a very, very uh, negative signal to China, for instance, vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan or other claims to territory. So, again, let's give others a chance to ask, please. Hi, uh, thank you for your talk. Um, the United States has, I believe, the world's largest supplies of coal, oil, and natural gas. Mm. Unfortunately, because of the 30-plus year really demonization of traditional energy mm. and carbon phobia, really, we're not fully exploiting these for geopolitical benefit of the total statecraft. So I'm wondering, to, to what extent is the Russian Federation dependent on its 
exports of energy towards finances and what opening could there be if we had a change in policy mm -hmm. to really uh, undermine them and disrupt it? Yeah, good question. I'm not an energy expert. I'll refer you to somebody. I, I my wife, is one of the leading authorities on, on energy, uh, the politics of energy. Uh, I would say this. It's something like 60% uh, of the Russian budget has been traditionally dependent on revenues from oil, gas, uh, I think metals as well, um, and arms. Uh, but you know, mostly it was, it was oil and gas. Now, they've lost much of the European market. Um, because of the war, because of the sanctions, because of the caps on imports, with a few exceptions, as I said, I think Slovakia, uh, Hungary and Serbia are still largely dependent on Russian gas, but that share of their energy consumption is actually diminishing as well. So what the Russians have had to do is to sell uh, their energy cheap elsewhere. And the Chinese and the Indians jumped on this to get cheap Russian energy, uh, which isn't very good for their budget. Um, again, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I have talked to Russian economists who say things are getting quite perilous. We've not only are, aren't we earning what we did, uh, but the reserves, this, uh, the, the uh, sovereign funds, the reserves that they've accumulated over the years are now being are now dwindling. They've spent those largely on the war or to pay for all the social services, pensions, and so on that people are used to. <clears throat> so I would say it's, 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 a huge, it's a huge loss for them. Also, I think for the future, they're not getting the investment uh, in their energy industry for the uh, creation of new fields, for modernizing what is now uh, often an, an obsolete uh, infrastructure that they have in, in their energy market. Uh, permafrost also is going to affect uh, a lot of their um, extraction and distribution facilities and pipelines, something else to be watched. Um, and of course, uh, as other energies come online, you know, I'm, I'm neither pro or against carbon, but, uh, you know, ultimately we have to wean ourselves away from it. But it's going to take time. Uh, Russia has not invested in, in alternative energies in the same way, for instance, as, as the European Union has. So again, it faces you know, another accumulation of future crises or pressures uh, coming from that side, the energy side, which will affect revenues. And if revenues are affected, it affects everything else. Please, who, who else? <clears throat> Hi, um, my name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China Asia program here. And I wanted to add one comment um, as regards the gentleman's um, question. And I want to say that I agree with you 100% that there's no division when it comes to, you know, aiding Ukrainians um, in terms of the, you know, humanitarian, from the humanitarian perspective. And, um, and on top of that, um, uh, the U.S. allies in the region they are um, supporting other Eastern European countries mm -hmm. against um, Russia. So, for example, South Korea, they had a billions of dollars of contract with Poland. Yeah, for the tanks. Poland yep. is buying literally all kinds of artillery, mm -hmm. um, tanks, yeah. K9 explosives, yeah. the conventional weapons that are crucial for Ukrainians to mm -hmm. fight against Russia. Mm -hmm. And now they just had another contract with South Korea that they got this permission to sell those weapons 
to other Eastern European countries to fight against Russians. Mm -hmm. So um, the geopolitics are very dynamic right now. And as you know, Kim Jong Un has you know recently visited North uh, and, uh, Russia. Yeah. Maybe there's space force <laughs> space. But um, I, I just wanted to highlight that I think um, there's definitely a higher level of support when mm -hmm. it comes to the Ukrainian. <clears throat> Yeah, I would say I completely agree with you. I would say even Germany, which has been a holdout in terms of some of the weapons that it supplies, has massively increased uh, the total uh, supply of uh, weapons under that, um, you know, the, the, the long range missiles that they simply do, do not want to give. But as terms of proportion of, uh, of GDP, it's gone up in Germany. I think Germany is probably the highest now in Europe. Um, and in other countries, Swedes and the Finns, for instance, uh, you know, Finland's already now joined NATO, which is another great bonus uh, because it helps to protect that northern front, that northern flank in the Baltic states. And Sweden, which has uh, amazing air force. And uh, in terms of, I mean, basically, Russia is going to be excluded from the Baltic, um, which is a historic event as well. So, yeah, I would, I would agree with you. A lot of countries that are now... Um, um, increasing their military assistance, certainly not dropping it. The problem it really is we're running out of stocks of ammunition. Uh, we're not producing some of the equipment fast enough. Um, some pledges have been made, including in Germany, and yet they have not been fulfilled. I mean, the EU moves very slowly anyway in terms of bureaucracy. So there's, <coughs> there's still a lot of work to be done. You mentioned Poland. Yeah, Poland is now at the forefront of the NATO flank, basically, the eastern flank. It's, I would call it the, the book I'm doing now, the anchor of the transatlantic alliance in, in Europe, uh, on the European continent, uh, together with Britain, which actually is not on the continent. Uh, but but, but uh, in terms of its military, uh, which is increasing dramatically, up to 300,000 troops in the next few years, defense expenditure of over 4%, building up his territorial defense force, as you mentioned, getting weapons from everywhere, including some of the most sophisticated American weaponry. The Poles are preparing for a future potential conflict with Russia, and they're not going to lose this time. Um, you know, there's determination across the political spectrum on this. And they're helping Ukraine because that prevents uh, Russian forces ending up on the Polish border. So, you know, for the Poles, for the Bolts, for the Romanians, it's critical that Ukraine wins this war. Please. So, uh, two quick questions that kind of run into each other. First off, uh, let's just say you wake up tomorrow, Vladimir Putin drinks a bad tea, he's no longer <laughs> president of. Falls out of a window. Yeah, falls yeah. out of a window. Whatever he holds the general of Russia nowadays, he's no longer president of Russia. Do you think that makes this flat scenario quicker, like in Yugoslavia where Tito died, or do you think that it might be a rally around the dead Caesar type moment? And then second question, yeah. uh, with that one, is that you mentioned that obviously society is getting a lot worse for that. If the Russian mindset, because they're so deeply politicized and because of the Soviet Union, is it really worse than they had it, I don't know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, back after during the collapse of the right before during the Soviet Union? Yeah, let me answer the first one first. Um, I think there'll be a power struggle because there's no clear line of succession. Um, you know, once Putin is incapacitated, t 
taken out in the shed and shot or falls out of a window, whatever, whatever happens, or basically goes to Pyongyang for political asylum. You know, you know, the possibilities are endless. I think there will be a power struggle. There are different factions, and we saw this actually during the whole Prigozhin escapade. That there are not only uh, this wasn't only a conflict between the Wagnerites and the military. There are factions within the military and the military intelligence. Some of the GRU people that were supporting Prigozhin that I think will come to the forefront, F FSB factions or FSB conflicts with GIU. So I think we're going to witness a lot of power struggles and unresolved, um, unresolved succession question. You could have different rivals for power. Remember Yeltsin and Gorbachev during the Soviet collapse? Um, so in addition, I would say uh, Russia no longer has something that used to hold the country together, in which there were clear lines of succession, the Communist Party. Uh, in other words, you had a process, however undemocratic it was, you had a process of succession. Uh, you had this collective leadership after Stalin died in the Politburo and they decided who would replace. You don't have that anymore. And when a regime is so personalistic and it collapses or the person dies or is incapacitated or gets political asylum elsewhere, then I think the system is going to start to unravel much more quickly. Y your second question about economic conditions. Well, it, tough it out if they can see something better coming. If you're promised all sorts of things, including money from your soldiers that are being killed, um, your, your menfolk that are dying in Ukraine, and yet the money's not coming, your infrastructure is collapsing, um, you're not getting the, the pensions, you're, you may work, but you're not getting paid for six months or longer. If all this stuff starts to come together, uh, which I think it will, then uh, you're going to say, well, we're going to have to look for alternatives here. One thing actually I didn't mention, which I should, I think some of these um, regional governors or Republican governors that have been appointed by Moscow, in the old days, in Yeltsin's time, there was a sort of federation because there were local elections for governor. Since then, Moscow has appointed governors to basically follow to toe the Moscow line. Although some of them have actually escaped Moscow's control, as in Khabarovsk, where there were huge protests for a couple of years against Moscow trying to remove the governor because they supported him, because he supported the local population uh, and wanted funds for that region. So you can have a situation where increasingly regional governors are going to say, well, do I take the side of Moscow where, as you said, Putin is dead or the, or the center is collapsing, it's losing a war, it can't it can no longer give us economic wherewithal, or do I go with the population and, and move away from Moscow and declare some sort of sovereignty. And this is why I argue in the book, I think some governors are going to do this, uh, the latter, in other words, and I think this will have a cascading effect. Uh, in other words, if the Russians, uh, if Moscow tries to crack down, but is unable to, or it's because it's preoccupied, its forces, everything has been thrown at Ukraine, I don't think they'll handle such a major challenge within the country if that starts to cascade around from republic to republic, from region to region. Uh, and there, I think, economic grievances will be one of the factors that will be used uh, to push for secession, push for independence.